This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello there and welcome to Trumpet Hour. I appreciate you listening in. I'm Joel Hilliker. Grocery prices are rising But this is just the first rumblings of a much more serious storm approaching. In fact, food shortages are already a major problem in many areas. Food is practically the most basic of human needs, and when there isn't enough of it, it creates serious problems. In our first segment today, we'll look at several facts about food supplies that are very troubling, and we'll see how the biblically prophesied famines could be much closer than we think. Then we're going to talk with trumpet writer Richard Palmer about Russia's wartime atrocities that are now being exposed. This is a chilling glimpse at the biblically prophesied times of the Gentiles. In our third segment, we'll hear about a spate of mass shootings in America, the latest taking place in Sacramento this past Sunday that killed six people. We'll hear a report from trumpet writer Rufaro Manyepa about the causes of such attacks. And I'll conclude today's show by talking about why biblical prophecy is so important to study. Let's start by talking about food shortages and famine. The war in Ukraine feels like it's on the other side of the world for most of us, but its effects are being felt far and wide. And one particularly important way, very relevant way, regards food. Ukraine and Russia grow a large percentage of important global food supplies, 20% of the world's corn, 30% of the world's wheat, 80% of the world's sunflower oil. In an article called The Return of the Third Horseman, Peter Zihan wrote this on April 1st. Roughly three weeks ago, the Russian army poured across Russia's western frontier into Ukraine. As viewed from an agricultural point of view, the world's largest wheat exporter invaded the world's fourth largest wheat exporter. That alone condemns the Middle East to its most volatile and violent period in at least the last century. And he says, unfortunately, this is just the beginning of the story. It's important for us to recognize some of these wider effects, the wider implications of this war that is taking place. Zihan says Russia's forces are using the same scorched earth assaults in Ukraine's omnipresent small towns and villages. Without the logistical sinew these towns provide, Ukrainian farmers won't be able to plant this year. Ukraine isn't simply disappearing from the ranks of the world's major global exporters. This year and for years to come, it will be an importer. Half of Africa's wheat imports usually come from Russia or Ukraine, and other nations rely on wheat exports from these two countries even more than Africa does. I'm going to read some facts from a Zero Hedge article dated yesterday, April 5th. Armenia, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and Eritrea have imported virtually all of their wheat from Russia and Ukraine and must find new sources. But they are competing against much larger buyers, including Turkey, Egypt, Bangladesh, and Iran. 
which have obtained more than 60% of their wheat from the two warring countries. A Russian government official has threatened that Russia will limit its vital food exports to only nations it considers friendly. Dmitry Medvedev, a senior Russian security official who previously served as the nation's president, has threatened that Russia may soon cut off the West from food exports. Now, there are obviously going to be a lot of countries that would be directly affected by that. If they're expecting food exports from Russia, from Ukraine, to help feed their people. But even more broadly and more worryingly, Russia produces about two-thirds of the world's fertilizer, and they've decided to temporarily suspend fertilizer exports. Already, since this time last year, some fertilizer prices have gone up by as much as 300%, three times the cost of what it was a year ago. And Russia cutting off supplies is going to send those prices even higher. And this is on top of rising natural gas prices, which are important to fertilizer production. That is also going to increase the expense of these critical supplies for today's farmers. This affects farmers all over the world, including America. Zero Hedge writes, many farmers in Africa will not be able to afford fertilizer at all this year. With prices tripling over the past 18 months, many farmers are considering whether to forego purchases of fertilizers this year. That leaves a market long touted for its growth potential set to shrink by almost a third, according to the program manager at researcher group AfricaFertilizer.org. That could potentially curb cereals output by 30 million tons, enough to feed 100 million people, he said. This is a reality that faces us because we have grown so dependent in our modern food production on these fertilizers. Andrew Miller has an article in the new Trumpet print edition uh, with the title War Sparks Food Crisis. That's going up on the website uh, on the trumpet.com tomorrow. You can watch for this. But he he writes this. In America, groceries are about 8.5% more expensive than they were a year ago. But the situation is much worse in other countries. The United Nations Food Agency reports that worldwide the price of food has increased 20.7% and is still rising. Now, there are many factors contributing to this, and they're not all related to the Ukraine war. Rising gas prices are driving up farming and shipping costs. In America, there is severe drought covering much of the country. AgWeb.com says the winter wheat crop is in really bad shape in Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas because of extreme drought. Zero Hedge reports last Friday it was announced that another 5 million egg-laying chickens in Iowa would have to be put down because of the bird flu. The death toll from the bird flu in Iowa alone will be pushed beyond 13 million as a result of this latest incident. Nationwide, this flu has killed 22 million egg-laying chickens, 1.8 million broiler chickens, 1.9 million pullet and other commercial chickens, and 1.9 million turkeys. These are the kinds of headlines that are filling more and more of our news cycle 
And U.S. President Joe Biden recently admitted that food shortages are going to be real. He is blaming what's happening in Ukraine and he's blaming Russia for this. But there really are a number of factors that are contributing to this problem. This is an article from Bloomberg from March 29th, and it it quotes BlackRock President Rob Capito. BlackRock, of course, is the world's largest asset manager. It has about $10 trillion in assets and investments across the global economy. And the president of this powerful organization, here's Bloomberg, warned that Inflation is having dramatic effects on the economy, with an entire generation now learning what it means to suffer from shortages. He said this at a conference in Austin recently by the Texas Independent Producers and Royalty Owners Association. For the first time, this generation is going to go into a store and not be able to get what they want. We have a very entitled generation that has never had to sacrifice Bloomberg says the economy is reckoning with what he dubbed scarcity inflation or the fallout from a shortage of workers, agricultural supplies and housing and of oil in some regions. He said, I would put on your seatbelts because this is something that we haven't seen. Pretty stark, sobering warning from the president of BlackRock. On Monday, Real Clear World published an article titled The Geopolitics of Food. And this article talks about how interdependent the world has grown in food production. What's happening now is governments are getting nervous because of all of these pressures on global food supplies. And so they are shutting down those supply lines. This is Real Clear World. The fear of potential food shortages also becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because rising food prices and fears of supply cause governments to enact more protectionist measures to protect their own security of supply, exacerbating the situation for other countries. Even before the the Russia-Ukraine war, countries like Indonesia, Argentina, China, and Vietnam were dabbling in protectionist food policies. A generational drought in parts of South America's most important agricultural regions and COVID-19 disruptions were already conspiring to send food prices to new records. The FAO's food price index recorded a new high in February before the war started. This is why the longer the Russia-Ukraine war goes, the more the global food system buckles. We're already seeing rationing beginning in several European countries. This is Zero Hedge again. In Spain, the country started experiencing sporadic shortages of different products like eggs, milk, and other dairy products almost immediately following the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. In early March, major supermarkets like Mercadana and Macro began rationing sunflower oil. In Greece, at least four national supermarket chains have started rationing food products like flour and sunflower oil. Germany, quote, will take one step toward a return of the dreaded Weimar hyperinflation, with Reuters reporting that food prices at supermarkets will soon go up between 20 and 50 percent. France's foreign affairs minister said we should brace ourselves for an extremely serious global food crisis. 
the head of the UN World Food Program. This is the United Nations agency that feeds 125 million people a day. This man said that the planet is now facing something unlike anything we have seen since World War II. He said Ukraine has only compounded a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe. There is no precedent even close to this since World War II. So there were already serious problems with global food production. And the Ukraine war has created a crisis on top of an existing crisis. And these these kinds of food shortages really do have ripple effects that have broad geopolitical ramifications. The Arab Spring from several years back started with food shortages. Let me read uh, a bit of this article from Andrew Miller's uh, Trumpet Print Edition. Watch for the food crisis to benefit Islamic movements like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and Al-Shabaab in Ethiopia. The prophet Daniel foretold that Egypt and Ethiopia would align with an Islamic radical leader. You can read that in Daniel 11, 42 and 43. In his booklet, The King of the South, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry identifies Iran as the King of the South and forecasts that pro-Iran movements will take control of Egypt and Ethiopia. Watch for food insecurity and economic turmoil from the war in Ukraine to destabilize these two nations, giving radical Islam and Iran incentive to spark a revolution. Wars causing food shortages and food shortages causing wars are indeed going to become increasingly worse. These are the days that we are living in right now, Andrew Miller writes. That is just one example of the kind of geopolitical effects that such food shortages can have. You could see serious social disruption in many nations taking place when people begin to recognize that there is not enough food to go around. This is uh, a quote, another quote from that Peter Zihan article, whether due to sanctions, war, boycotts, or malinvestment, we stand at the beginning of years long shortages of the stuff we need to feed the world. We'll chew through the world's collective wheat reserves before year's end and shortly thereafter tip into deep chronic food shortages spanning multiple continents. And then he makes this remarkable statement. This concludes Zihan's article. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is reacquainting the world with the first horseman. Now he's referring there to the prophecy in Revelation 6 about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. He says the first horseman as if that horseman represents war. Actually, the second horseman represents war. And he says, that's no fun for anyone, but it is the return of the third that gives me nightmares. That third horseman of the apocalypse is famine. You can read about that in Revelation 6. And that prophecy is referred to by Jesus Christ in his famous Olivet prophecy of Matthew 24. There Christ's disciples asked him for a sign of the end of the world. And Christ confirmed that the end of human civilization would come. And he gave them specific signs to watch for that would indicate that that time was about to take place. He said in verses 4 through 8 of Matthew 24, 
Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. That's actually referring to the first horseman of the apocalypse, which represents religious deception. And then Christ continues, and you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's talking about the second horseman, war. See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet, for nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Then he says, there shall be famines. Now that's talking about the third horseman of the apocalypse. So among all these other signs, Jesus Christ himself specifically prophesied about religious deception, war, and food shortages and famine. We have a booklet, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, that explains this prophecy in detail. And I would really recommend that you get a copy of this booklet. We will send it to you for free. As you see all of these events unfolding, you look at what Jesus Christ prophesied. And you have to believe that what we are seeing is really the early stages of the fulfillment of those dramatic and chilling prophecies of the end of the age. What gives us hope, though, is the context of those prophecies. They show the ultimate outcome of these events that besiege the nations. All of these events that we are seeing are leading to the second coming of Jesus Christ. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. As Russian soldiers evacuate portions of Ukraine, we are getting a chilling look at the kind of atrocities that they have been committing in this war, as we will now hear in this report from Richard Palmer. There's only one word for what Russia is leaving behind in Ukraine. Evil. As the Russian army retreats from Kiev, the scale of its evil has been revealed. Bodies with hands tied behind their backs litter the streets. Bodies carpet the basements of buildings the, bo- the Russians used as command posts. The Russians cut off ears and pulled out teeth, torturing and then killing. Bodies are stuffed in manholes and buried in gardens and play areas. In some cases, the Russians wouldn't let people travel anywhere to bury the bodies, so they had to dig graves wherever they were. Some of the bodies hit landmines, according to Ukrainian authorities, designed to kill anyone who would try to give the dead some dignity. Many of these bodies do not belong to civilians caught in the crossfire as the army pursued a military objective regardless of the human cost. This isn't disregard for human life. It's the deliberate destruction of it. Many of these civilians were killed either as a part of a calculated policy to spread terror and to try and break the will of Ukrainians, or for some twisted kind of entertainment by bored soldiers. In Buka, one of the towns occupied by Russians, the mayor said 118 bodies had been found in mass graves, and Agency France Press reported that the local government said at least 280 were killed. The mayor said the amount of graves in courtyards, streets, parks, and squares will calculate in the morning more accurately. The word crime is too mild a description of what happened here. 
Russia claims the atrocities were committed by Ukrainians as a false flag operation designed to turn the world against Russia. It used similar excuses in Syria, but journalists traveling with Ukrainian forces reported that the bodies were already dead and decaying when they arrived. Many stories that have turned out to be false have been circulating on social media and even made their way into the mainstream throughout the conflict, so I've tried to rely on stories verified by journalists on the ground. But there's little room to doubt what is happening here. More common than the bodies even are mines, hidden everywhere from houses to children's parks. And what possible military reason is there for mining a playground? It's going to be a long time before these places are safe to live in again. And until then, the list of Ukrainian victims is only going to grow. Hugh Williamson of Human Rights Watch said, The cases we documented amount unspeakable deliberate cruelty and violence against Ukrainian civilians. Jack Watling of the Royal United Service Institute wrote at the Telegraph that this is a result of official Russian policy. He says that Russian President Vladimir Putin wanted to go after those who uh, helped Ukraine out of the Russian orbit in 2014. He writes that Ukrainians therefore were told unambiguously that their civil society leaders would be hunted, a mission for which Russian special forces had been rehearsing, and that to support them would incur repressive collective punishment. So civilians were tortured and killed because their leaders would not surrender. Russia's state-owned RIA Novosti confirms this impression. They had an article explaining how Russia aimed to denazify Ukraine. The authorities in Russia, just like the communists before them, use Nazi to uh, define all of their opponents. Anyone who supports Ukraine's current government or even Ukraine's independence from Russia is to them a Nazi. Denazification is a set of measures aimed at the Nazified mass of the population, which technically cannot be subject to direct punishment as war criminals, this article states. They write that besides the elite, a significant part of the masses of people who are passive Nazis are accomplices to Nazism. They have supported the Nazi authorities and indulged them. They write that the just punishment for this part of the population is possible only as the bearing of the inevitable hardships of a just war against the Nazi system. Is this what we're seeing around Kiev? The, quote, just punishment of the general population? And so local government officials and their supporters are among the dead. In in one town, the, the mayor, her husband, and her son were found in a mass grave of at least 20 civilians. Her fingers and arms were broken. Other bodies showed signs of torture. Two thoughts came to my mind looking at all this carnage. The first is that the Bible certainly gives us valuable insight into Vladimir Putin. In 2017, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry produced a booklet titled The Prophesied Prince of Russia, explaining how the Bible really prophesies of the role that Vladimir Putin would play in world events. In that booklet, Mr. Flurry writes, Putin has a long pattern of diabolical evil on the level of Joseph Stalin, He said that no leader in Russia has equaled Putin's diabolical evil since Joseph Stalin. And those quotes stood out to me because that wasn't obvious at the time. It was estimated that Stalin killed at least 20 million people. In 2017, it was very clear Vladimir Putin was evil, but that level of evil? Now, even in 2017, if you looked at what Putin had done in places like Chechnya, the evidence is there. But there can be no doubting the accuracy of those statements now. The Daily Mail on Monday described the carnage around Kiev, writing, Survivors emerging from basements after weeks underground told of summary executions, sexual violence and terror not seen since Joseph Stalin's Soviet rule of terror in the 1930s. Now, my first reaction to a lot of these reports was to deliberately ignore them for as long as I could. They're not pleasant to think about, to read about, to look at. 
But then a scripture came to mind. Isaiah 33 and verse 18 states, Thine heart shall meditate terror. Commenting on this verse in a 2013 lecture, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry said, God says, now look, we have to face reality. That's the way this world is, and we can't just shut it out of our minds and go watch television or go read a book, go see some sporting event or whatever, if it's used to escape this. God says, I want you to think about it. I want you to understand it. I want you to proclaim it to the world because it's about to be reality. How much time do you meditate on terror, he asked. We may not want to meditate on these things, but as Mr. Flurry says, God does. And he says, you better meditate on it. You better see how bad it really is. We have proclaimed for years that Britain and America will go into captivity. Many have thought that impossible, that modern, sophisticated nations don't get invaded and occupied. Ukraine should be a wake-up call. This is what captivity looks like. God gave his Old Testament prophets visions of what would soon be coming to this world, and they were not pleasant. Habakkuk, for example, wrote, When I heard, my belly trembled, my lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones. I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up into the people, he will invade with his troops. Habakkuk didn't enjoy seeing it, but he needed that vision. And we can gain a similar sort of vision just by looking at these events in Ukraine. But we cannot meditate only on terror. If you look at what is happening in Ukraine, you will quickly become depressed. But the same passage in Isaiah 33 goes on to tell us, Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed, neither any of the cords thereof be broken. We must meditate on terror. We must see the real evil in this world, but we must also see where it is leading. This is describing a vision of an eternal Jerusalem, which is never going to be destroyed. It's the same vision of a new Jerusalem described in Revelation 21, which contains hope beyond anything man can imagine. The vision is how Habakkuk could describe terrifying destructions in one verse and then just a verse or two later say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. If we meditate on terror in this context, it will have a positive effect. In the lecture I quoted earlier, Mr. Flurry said, doing so will motivate you to turn more people to righteousness. You're going to say, oh God, help me to clean up this filthy, filthy, vile world that we live, it, that we live in. Depraved people that have minds like the devil. We can learn a lot by meditating on the terror in Ukraine. It reveals the evil within mankind and within ourselves. It shows our need for a savior. Now, who really believes there is any solution to this on a human level? Who's going to stop Vladimir Putin from doing whatever he wants? He has nuclear weapons. You can't fight Russia without wiping out mankind. The United Nations can't do anything. Putin's Russia sits on the Security Council. It can veto anything it likes. This evil is not going to be stopped by man, and it's only going to get worse. Meditating on terror shows us the need for a new world, one led by God, not by man. And it's a world that we can have a role in setting up right now. If you want to learn more about Vladimir Putin and his role in this terror of end-time world events, read our free book, The Prophesied Prince of Rosh. But an even more important book to read is The Eternal Has Chosen Jerusalem. That will give you the hope and the vision that you need to stay positive in a world increasingly full of terror. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker.
America has suffered a number of mass shootings in recent weeks. It seems we barely turn the page on one tragedy when another is filling our headlines. We'll look into the cause for such heartbreaking events in this report from Rufaro Manyepa. Six people were killed and 12 more were wounded in a mass shooting that took place in downtown Sacramento this past Sunday. And this mass shooting matched the deadliest mass shootings of the year, and it was the very worst in Sacramento's history. Tragically, it's not the worst by much. Just a month ago, a man shot and killed four people, three of which were his daughters, before killing himself in suburban Sacramento. There have been plenty other mass shootings already this year before this one. A couple of weekends ago, between March 18th and 20, nine mass shootings took place across seven American states. Eight people were killed and 60 were injured over just one weekend. There have been at least 108 mass shootings so far this year. The tragedies just keep on mounting. With issues like the Ukraine invasion and rising inflation taking headlines during the disastrous Biden tenure, it might seem like mass shootings have slowed. But not only are they on the rise in the United States, but they are becoming more fatal. A study by the Violence Project Initiative studied mass shootings over the last 54 years. It found that about eight people were killed in mass shootings per year in the 70s. But in the last five years, an average of 51 people die in mass shootings per year. This is in part because mass shootings are rising. More than 50% of the mass shootings that took place between 1966 and 2019, more than 50% of those have taken place since 2000, just in the last 20 years. And it's only gotten worse since then. While there were 417 mass shootings in 2019, this figure rose to 600 in 2020, and then it rose further to 693 in 2021. And mass shootings might not be making many headlines, but they're getting worse and they're getting deadlier. Overall, The United States is going through an historic crime wave, and most of the violence is concentrated in the cities. At least two-thirds of America's largest cities had more homicides this past year than in 2020. Ten of these cities set all-time records. New York City is one of the worst hit. Newly elected mayor Eric Adams has called it, quote, a river of violence that is feeding the sea of violence. Former New York City Police Commissioner William Bratton identified the root problem of the rising crime wave well in an interview last summer. He said that the decision not to punish low-level non-violent crimes has had a ripple effect. It has led criminals to believe well, I got off this time, I can try it again. He says that it's like you're raising a child. If you don't correct the child, it just keeps getting worse. Now that's an opinion and an ethos that many on the left disagree with. Many believe that the problem lies with gun ownership and the solution is gun control. 
But that would just be like rubbing salve on a tumor. It doesn't solve the underlying problem. Sacramento is proof of this. The state of California has some of the most stringent gun laws in the country. By the logic of gun control purportedly reducing gun violence, California should have the lowest levels of gun violence. But those stringent laws couldn't stop these tragedies from occurring. Why? Well, according to the National Institute of Justice, 80% of mass shooters were individuals in crisis. About a third of them had experienced childhood trauma. And many Americans suffered from this even before 2020. But the pandemic increased levels of social isolation and resultantly depression and anxiety. Alcohol and drug overdoses are also on the rise. And so it doesn't matter if it's a rival gang or a father and his three daughters. Gun violence is taking place and everyone is suffering. But why are things getting worse? What is the real underlying cause of tragedies that are all too common in the United States? Many people scoff at the veracity of the Bible, but it gives the true explanation of the problems bedeviling society. Jesus Christ himself drew attention to the existence of a devil, an evil spirit being who's been a murderer from the beginning, as it says in John 8:44. Ephesians 2.2 and Revelation 12 verse 9 also call him the prince of the power of the air because of his ability to exert an evil influence and deceive the whole world. Satan and his demons are inflicting a great deal of damage on this world. After the October 2017 mass shooting in Las Vegas where 58 people were killed, the worst in American history, Here's what Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Mr. Gerald Flurry wrote. Think on the blood and tear-soaked streets of Las Vegas Strip to get an idea of the fathomless woe these diabolical spirits can cause. Sadly, their lethal, hellish influence is growing, and it is going to get even worse. More and more people are inviting demonic presence into their lives. They are saturating their minds in evil entertainment. They are giving in to evil, hateful emotion. They are becoming addicted to prescription drugs in record numbers. They are taking other dangerous, mind-altering substances, all of which make it far easier for demons to manipulate their thinking. The number of unstable people in this world is growing rapidly. He continues, if you let Satan get to you, you can end up doing some abominable things. In Las Vegas, authorities are looking for motives. This is the motive. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. Mr. Flurry there quotes Revelation 12 verse 12. The good news is that Satan has a very short time left on this earth. Jesus Christ is about to return to rule the earth under his government of peace. But Mr. Flurry continues, In the short term, our world is going to experience worse and worse atrocities as Satan's great wrath reaches unparalleled heights. A demoniacal gunman firing on a crowd is only the start. 
Look around at the explosion of crises plaguing our world, he writes. Weather disasters, racial hatred, social unraveling, economic volatility, international instability, nuclear proliferation. Mr. Flurry wrote that in 2017, but how much more prescient has this been revealed to be today? One look at the world and we can see this plague of crises on the door. So what can anyone do? Nothing but look to God and the Bible for the solution. Mr. Flurry concludes, if we do that and put our trust in God, we don't need to fear what is happening in the world. We desperately need the vision and hope that only God supplies. Well, thank you very much for that, Rufaro. It's, it's interesting how consistent the left is. Whenever an event like this happens, they, they always go to the gun control point. But, you know, that, that is clearly a, um, a distraction from the real causes of these problems. You quoted some people who recognize that, and they're pointing to other causes. You, you talked about uh, individuals who recognize that we're not going after criminals uh, with the, uh, you know, as, as intently as we should. Mm. Uh, the fact that there are people who are in crisis, that they're experiencing childhood trauma, uh, that you have a lot of this increasing drug and alcohol use increasing. And this seems like this is definitely getting closer to the actual causes. But I find, I find it interesting that none of those things that you're talking about really seem to be on anyone's radar as far as changing things. You know, when uh, an event like this happens to try to prevent those kinds of things happening. There's no concerted effort, for example, to strengthen family life, to prevent, uh, you know, raising juvenile delinquents or people who are really uh, troubled and traumatized. There's no effort to, say, uh, eliminate uh, the glorification of violence because these are just massive, almost endemic problems in society. You know, you, you may be able to strengthen one family, but then there's just so many other people out there that are experiencing uh, these problems on a, on a large scale. It's almost like trying to plug holes in a dam that's already cracking. We're talking about sort of the foundation of, of society in general. Uh, it, and it, it is almost like an admission that these problems are too big for us to really be able to address in a way that would prevent these kinds of tragedies from taking place. Right. And I think that's that then brings up the question is how much do they even want to solve these issues? You know, if you if you look at, you know, the fact that they're just simply not prosecuting uh, perpetrators of violent crime. You know, I mentioned in there uh, with, with those nine mass shootings that took place across one of those weekends, a, a lot of those were uh, were related to gang violence, you know, and one thing that happens is that as soon as it's black on black crime, the left doesn't want to see that at all. They don't want to talk about right. that at all. Yeah. You know, why don't they want to address that issue? You know, why, why isn't it high on the priority? You know, and then you think about 
when it's people who are depressed and people who are on drugs, people who have problems like that committing these acts of violence, you then have a president who wants to make it easier for these people to have access to crack pipes, you know, and, and just encouraging this. And you wonder why aren't they taking the action to solve these issues? It almost seems as though they don't want to, you know, it almost seems as though they want this violence to continue, you know, and I think it really does get to the issue of them wanting control, you know, because if violent crimes and, and violence persists, particularly gun violence, then it, it keeps in their eyes giving credence to, to their, their claims that gun violence can only be solved by gun control. And so give us all the control and yep. then we can solve these issues. Give us all your guns. You know, which is really diabolical if you think about it, because they're willing to allow these atrocities to continue happening. They're willing to not talk about it. You know, it was pretty difficult to come across some of these stories because they're just so underreported. Part of it is because so many other things are happening, but, you know, right. they just don't talk about this and it's happening so often. Well, it's, that's probably a, a measure of just how common they are as well that they're 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 not making headlines because they are happening so routinely but i i think you you're absolutely right there's certainly a a, a group of people out there who benefit politically from these things happening because they're trying to enact these uh these restrictions on guns in the country and they have their own uh their own reasons for that their own purposes behind that I, I, I do find it interesting that on the other side of the, the equation, you have people who probably would love to be able to address some of the underlying causes for these things, and yet they don't have the political will or there's just not mm -hmm. enough support publicly to address some of those things. Or as I said before, it's just such an overwhelming problem when you really get into the nuts and bolts right. of what what is causing this happening and then you add this spiritual dimension just the like gerald flurry brought out the fact that the devil is more active that his presence and his influence are increasing mm. in the world around us and you know there are some really troubled people who have opened some themselves up to some deadly spiritual influences there that uh really do put the rest of us in danger and I, I think if you're not looking at that spiritual dimension then you you are just kind of bewildered right uh to see these things taking place but it is important that we recognize what's truly going on there we've been talking with trumpet writer rufaro maniepa about mass shootings in america and getting to the actual causes of these tragedies he's written an article about this subject that you can find at thetrumpet.com. Go check that out. We really appreciate your time, Rafaro. Always a pleasure, sir. It's time for today's Last Word. When my children were little, I would sit down with them every Sunday morning and we would talk about the coming week. And they had a chart showing different qualities of character that I wanted them to work on. They got stickers for good behavior, check marks for bad behavior. 
And as we talked, I would tell them what they would receive if they got so many stickers. They'd get a trip to the library or we'd bake cookies or they'd have a sleepover. If they got so many check marks, they would have toys taken away. They couldn't have friends over, those types of things. Now, in a sense, I was acquainting my children with one of the basic premises of Bible prophecy. Exodus 20 and verse 12 gives the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the eternal your God gives you. Ephesians 6 calls this the first commandment with promise. And it's also a commandment with a prophecy. If you keep it, God tells you in advance what the outcome of your obedience will be. And that's essentially what my children and I were talking about. They knew that certain actions would produce certain outcomes in the future. Deuteronomy 28 is a passage of scripture we often refer to for its prophetic importance. It says, and it shall come to pass if you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the eternal your God to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command you this day, that the eternal your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you. Now that certainly qualifies as a prophecy. And you can look through that chapter, Deuteronomy 28, at all the blessings prophesied that uh, come from obedience. And then in verse 45, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and shall pursue you and overtake you till you be destroyed because you hearkened not unto the voice of the eternal your God to keep his commandments. And they shall be upon you for a sign and for a wonder and upon your seed forever. So that is given in plain prophetic language. It says forever. But it's essentially the same as a father telling his child that bad behavior will bring punishment. Now, not all Bible prophecy is of that type, but a lot of it is. The word prophecy is from the Greek pro, before, and plus the root of phanai, which means to speak. It just means speaking before or foretelling. Herbert W. Armstrong often said that one-third of the Bible is prophecy. So that is a lot of the Bible that God devoted to prophecy. It shows you how much importance God places on it. Well, how important is it to you? I want to briefly look at two short prophecies and then look at two very different responses to those prophecies. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 has this prophecy. The eternal your God will raise up unto you a prophet from the midst of you, of your brethren, like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. Now this is Moses prophesying about the first coming of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes the second time, he isn't going to come from the midst of the people. But the Pharisees of Christ's day were waiting and hoping for a powerful Messiah to free them from their captivity to the Romans. Now, this is just one of many prophecies in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ's first appearance. And this clearly says that Moses was a prophet and that Jesus Christ was a prophet. This is Moses the prophet prophesying about a future prophet like unto me. Right before that first coming of Christ, God sent John the Baptist to prophesy of Christ's imminent appearance. He wanted people who had the eyes to see to be able to recognize Christ as the one 
who fulfilled that prophecy by Moses. Now, in John 1 and verse 19, it says the Jewish priests and the Levites came to John, and they asked him, well, who are you? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. So John told them, I'm fulfilling the prophecy in the book of Isaiah. What what gave John the Baptist his credentials was the fact that God had pre-announced his role through the prophet Isaiah. You can read that prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40. God knew well in advance that he was going to select someone for this role of preparing the way for his son's arrival on earth as a human being, prophesying of his arrival. So God put those words in the mouth of the prophet Isaiah, and John fulfilled that prophecy. So you can start to see how God uses this tool of prophecy. He used it to establish his own authority. He uses it to establish the credentials of his servants. He uses it to motivate people and inspire certain actions from them. He uses it to announce his intentions. And he uses it to demonstrate his power to bring things to pass. So God uses prophecy to good effect. He uses it regularly. Now, just carrying on in this passage in John 1, verses 29 and 30 say this, The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him, And says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. So this is how John the Baptist reacted when he saw Jesus Christ. He knew this was the Lamb of God. By calling him that, Jesus was alluding to the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and verse 7, which says the Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was also pointing back to the annual slaughter of the Passover lamb that the Israelites would do each year. So right from Christ's entrance, John knew what Christ was there to do because it was prophesied. The Apostle John later called him the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God had planned this and repeatedly prophesied beforehand that this would happen. And carrying on there in John 1, it says in verse 35, again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked said, behold, the Lamb of God. And you can read the next several verses and you see these disciples saying, hey, we found the Messiah. They recognized this man as the one who would fulfill all those prophecies. In verse 45, one of them says, we found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Moses wrote about him in the law. The prophets wrote about him. God prophesied to the world that he was coming, and those prophecies were fulfilled. Does it seem strange that God would follow the same pattern to prepare for Christ's second coming? Jesus Christ didn't just show up one day. God had this planned out from the foundation of the world, and he repeatedly announced it. He prophesied specific details about it. And then just before it happened, he sent a messenger to prepare the way. The same thing is true of the second coming, except this is an even greater event, and there is far more prophecy announcing it. Now, 
you see quite a contrast with how the religious leaders responded to Christ. In John 5 and verse 18, it says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Now you see then what follows, Jesus Christ's response to these Jews. In verse 39, he says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The scriptures testify of me, Christ says. They are loaded with prophecy about this very moment. He told those Pharisees, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? If you knew Moses' writings, you'd know those prophecies, and you would recognize me. How important is prophecy? Look at the difference between the men who knew those prophecies and accepted those with a childlike attitude, those prophecies as God had written them, and the men who were hazy on those prophecies or they had their own ideas about how they should be fulfilled. What a difference. We're talking about the difference between following the Son of God and trying to kill him. Most religious people today are like those religious leaders. A lot of people, even Christians, view Bible prophecy as a kind of weird or dangerous subject to get into, but the fact is God filled one-third of the Bible with prophecy for good reason, and it should be a significant part of our spiritual diet. I'm Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on the program today to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to my guests, Richard Palmer and Rufaro Maniepa. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Oliver Wendell Holmes. We need education in the obvious more than investigation of the obscure. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.